When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Monday night, woeful. And welcome to episode 9 of this season's Real Football Cast. As always, I'm your host, Dan Tracy, and in the next 60 minutes, we'll be dissecting all the hot topics in football. As per usual, we'll be discussing what's been going on in the Premier League over the past few days. While in addition to that, there are also some off-pitch activities that have caught our eye and they'll be getting our attention in the next hour. I'm going with my try and tested two up top this week, and once again, it's a full-strength lineup, which means first up and leading the line is Cole. Cole, how are things with you, my friend? Yeah, really good, Dan. Um, glad to get another good chat week of football around us. So I think we've got a good one coming up. Yes, I think we have. And also joining us, of course, is Drew. He's from across the pond. And once again, he's on board. So, Drew, it's always a pleasure. How are things with you, my friend? Fantastic. Doing much better than Manchester United and Arsenal fans after that game yesterday. <laughs> yeah, we'll come on to that in just a minute, actually. Jeez, I mean, credit to anyone who actually watched all 90 minutes, because that weren't really befitting of... Uh, Two clubs of such magnitude. But anyway, we'll get into that point shortly. So, before we do, I'll do the social media bits first. If you want to get in touch with me, you can. That's on Twitter, at StanTracy1983. And also, the podcast has its own account, which is Real Football Pod. So, any questions, comments, if you want to follow me at Real Football Pod, please get involved. You can find me via iTunes by searching for Real Football Cast. And if you use that platform, then don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you like it, please leave a review. And if you're not a fan of all things Apple, you can find me on SoundCloud and Acast. While the easiest way to find all the links is at realfootballcast.com. As you should know by now, the Real Football Cast is sponsored by Loserpool. And what is Loserpool, I hear you ask? It's the company behind the game, Last Man Standing. One which is free to enter, and the prize pool once again stands at £1,000. If this has grabbed your interest, then be sure to visit Loserpool.com and create an account. The odds of winning are great, but even better if you sign up. Right then, it's time to go live. And where should we go first? Let's go to Old Trafford and the scene of Monday Night Football, which you could argue was the scene of crimes against football. Carl, a really tough watch. But did you think it was the right result in the end? Yeah, you're dead right there, Dan. A real tough watch given the two sides and the calibre and the sort of games we're used to between those over the, over the past few Premier League seasons. Um, 
I did, you know, in, in truth, I did think it was a fair result by the end because I think, you know, both team kind of, you know, they created an even amount of chances, I would say. Um, you know, they both had little spells in the game where they seemed to be slightly on top of one another. Um, but overall, it, you know, if, if you was one of those, you know, if you're supporting Arsenal or you're a Man United supporter, I think that kind of performance in that game really kind of showed you um, the type of season that you're going to have ahead. Um, and I do believe that possibly, you know, that kind of showed both of those sides last night that they could both struggle to make the top four this season because the football was turdage. Um you know, I, I have to say, you know, neither side seem to create anything or, or have players that kind of get you off your seat massively. Um, you know, again, another performance where Pepe struggles. Um, and obviously, you know, that's going to be a concern for Arsenal. Another performance where I asked the question, what is Jesse Lingard? Um, <laughs> Good question. Because I just don't understand no, I don't know the how answer. this guy is a player at a club like Man United and getting in the England squad regularly because I don't see what the guy brings to the table. I really don't. Um, and I just think a real mixed bag for both sides. And I think that just is going to reflect what they're like all season long, to be honest. But yeah, it's not so much a super Monday, to be honest, was it? No, not at all. So Drew, in terms of Arsenal, you had Aubameyang, who you know is in form, and Pepe. Pepe, who's not really looking anything near that £72 million that the Gunners spent for him in the summer. What did you make of Unai Emery's setup in terms of attack? Because, I mean, defenders, there are some coming back, but you couldn't really risk all three returnees being thrown into the mix at Old Trafford. So if you look at it from an attacking point of view, was he bold enough? Well, he was smart enough to include Aubameyang because he is carrying that team. I wouldn't be surprised if Aubameyang has scoliosis by the end of this season. <laughs> with <laughs> Wow. With <laughs> just... He has the entire team, he has the entire side of North London, the red side of North London, on his back. And you saw it in this game. In terms of Pepe, I don't know what is happening with him. I expected him to be doing much better this season. And of course, you can make the argument of, oh, he needs time to adjust and, and all of these things. But he just seems too one-dimensional, as if he was able to, you know... He was able to succeed in the French League because he was good enough, but now that he's coming to, and, and I, I mean no disrespect when I say this, but a more proper league, he can't really cut the mustard. And, you know, every week we kind of see this. He's not scoring. I mean, his only goal this year is a penalty. And he's not even the penalty taker. He was he was gifted that by, by Obama Yang. And so I think for Unai Emery, in terms of attack, I mean, what more can he really do? I, I guess he could put in... Lacazette, but right now he's he's not fit, so that option's kind of out the window. And, and so I think in attack, Emery's hands are kind of tied. And in terms of of, of uh, defense, I actually I don't think he was crazy for putting three defensive midfielders, if that's how you want to say it. I know Granite Shock is not a great defensive midfielder, and Lucas Torreira is I would say more defensive than attacking, but you could also play him as a number eight. So I mean. You know, I, I think he, he understands that they are awful on the road. He didn't want to go in there and lose another road game, which would, of course, infuriate fans even more. So I think he was very, very pragmatic, and that's why you see a draw coming out of this. I mean, neither team is that talented. Neither team do you look at them and say, wow, those are superstars. I mean, Carl mentioned Jesse Lingard, a great example. A lot of guys 
on both sides here are pretty pedestrian. A lot of guys here, you would not think they are the class of the league. And so when it comes to Unai Emery, that he's kind of picking from what he has. I, you know, I know he's considered a, a tactical genius at, at his previous jobs, but I mean, when you when you simply don't have the players, it kind of doesn't matter what your tactics are if they can't execute them, if they just don't have the talent. There's nothing you can do. Absolutely. I mean, Cole, when we look at the players that were on for last night, I think if we were being generous, you could say there were three world class players. Let's say Pogba, De Gea, Aubameyang. Now. You could also look at those teams that played last night and say there are bright futures ahead for some players. At the same time, there's a lot of work to be done at both Manchester United and Arsenal. Yeah, I, I think both sides are lacking, you know, a real a real decent spine about them that they can then build around. Um, I think, you know, United, they, they obviously put a couple of pieces in. You know, you've got De Gea, a great goalkeeper. They spent big on Maguire in the summer, who they'll look to be a long-term centre half leader for them um you've got Pogba in midfield I think one of their problems is the striking department you know is Rashford a striker or is he a winger um I, I don't I think the jury's out there because is he prolific enough to be a real class Premier League striker that's going to score goals that win you a title or does he just frit in and out throughout the season you know little hot spells where he'll get you know a run of three games and three goals but then four games without anything you know Martial was the same um, and I and I think that's where those teams are kind of suffering right now. You know, United need someone else alongside Maguire. Um, they possibly need more in midfield. And then I think they really need to look at getting themselves kind of a 25, 30 goal a season striker um, that they know they can rely on week in, week out. Arsenal, I believe, you know, Arsenal again, we've said it time and time after. Going forward, you've no fears for them. Um, it's going to be at the back. And I think, you know, maybe, you know, they're lacking, you know, two real centre-halves um, and then possibly a leader in the middle of the pitch um, that could kind of sort them out. Uh, one question I would ask you guys is, obviously, when we look at someone like Pepe, would Arsenal have been better off if they were going to spend that money going for, for Zaha? You'd think Proven so, wouldn't you? Premier League yes. player. Um, he knows what he's getting into. You know the type of player. Did they just not want to budge on the Palace asking fee? But when you look at what they've spent to what they seem to have right now, then you surely got to argue that, well, Zaha would have been worth that money as well, wouldn't he? And, and giving them a better a better probably return than what they're seeing at the moment with Pepe. I would certainly agree with that. I that? honestly don't think so. No? No. I would disagree. Only because Zaha's 26, right? He should be right on the cusp of his prime. And he just simply has never put together a really successful season. He has all the talent in the world. But I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm trying to find it on Transfer Market right now. I'm pretty sure last year was his most prolific season statistically. And he only had 10 goals. I'm pretty sure is what it is. I'm trying to find it. And 10 assists. Which, if you're going to be a talisman, and, and I know he Crystal Palace, they have to play tough games. They don't always have a lot of the ball. I, I, I get that. But to me, if you're going to be a talisman, if you're going to be a leader, if you're going to be the go-to guy, to me, 10 goals, 10 assists is simply not enough. And so that's why I actually don't know. I, I think Zaha should be so much better of a player than he has shown. I mean, we saw when he went to Manchester United, he couldn't really hack it. And then going back to Crystal Palace, he's, he's been good. He's been solid. 
But to me, he hasn't really been... He hasn't had a breakout season. He hasn't been a player that is going to be like Aubameyang, who's going to you know drag your team to the finish line when needed. And so for that reason, I actually wouldn't say that he would have been a better pick. I think with Zahar, I think that move to Man United was too early. And I think he would accept that himself. You know, it didn't really work out for him. He's gone back to Palace and you are right in the sense that his metrics don't really sort of stack up as a big name sort of top calibre player. However... You could sort of then flip that on its side and said, if he got a move to a big club, which could have happened in the summer, would better players around him make him better and then lift him to that level? Which is a question we can't actually answer because he didn't make that move. So I think there's sort of a case for both arguments. I think Dream certainly make a great case for against, but I think we won't really know the answers until Zahar actually cuts the apron strings of Crystal Palace or Chris Palace are prepared to let him go, which they don't really want to do. And then we can really get... Uh, I mean, the one... The- Yes, yeah, continue. the one problem he has at Palace, doesn't he, is that he's their man and basically most teams just double, you know, just double up on him because you kind of feel, well, stop Zahar, you, you stop Palace at the moment. Um, so it would, I would be interested to see Zahar put in a good side, like if he joined the Spurs, Arsenal or, you know, one of those sorts of teams, how he performs. There's a big, jury's still out massively. Um, And like Dan, I think, like as you say, I think that Man United move came too early in his career. He wasn't ready, didn't have the right mentality for that then. Um, Now I'd be interested to see how he could get on, you know. But as you say, there's arguments on both sides. But I think if you look at it right now, um, for this current season, Arsenal, you know, maybe sitting there thinking, oh, actually, I don't know. Pepe could be a great long-term prospect, though. That is the thing. He's got age on his side. So I think we just have to wait and see. But I think he needs something to happen for him pretty quickly, doesn't he? Yes, he does. I mean, yesterday, this is quite a damning stat. He gave the ball away 17 times. And you just think, well, what is he actually like? He's almost trying a bit too hard to impress. And he's trying to do too many things and nothing's coming off. And there is time, but you know, with seven games in now, that kind of excuse of bedding in is sort of losing its luster, shall we say? And it's like you can't keep using that excuse. So it'd be interesting to see if he starts against Bournemouth at the weekend and if he actually can do something positive. But if we go back to the game itself, Drew, there was more contention in regard to VAR last night. We arguably saw the best and the worst of it, though, because the best was the incorrect offside call, and it was quite incorrect by distance um, overturned. Although that came with its own controversy, which we'll get to in a minute. And the worst was the Klasnak handball, which you'd think, well, hang on, if that's VAR and that's its job, how on earth has it not missed that? Are we getting to the point where literally VAR is just going to be for offside calls and that's where we are now? It almost seems like it. I mean, you know, we've talked about on the show every week and and at some point it's just like, who? There's, There's no way to predict what VAR is going to get right or wrong next. And when it comes to this game, I mean, I, I think what I think is a, a bigger call is the, the not offside and the goals given to Aubameyang. And the reason I say that is because a handball in the box called or not called, we've seen that, right? It, you know, Laporte's goal was taken, or uh, Laporte's handball was taken away, Manchester City against Spurs. But then I believe it was the next weekend, a ball went off of, uh, I think it was Fabian Scher with Newcastle. I think came off his hand, but yet VAR didn't overrule it. Um, so when it comes to handball and, and the new rule of the silhouette, it, it really is just kind of a toss-up. You have no idea. I mean, I don't know if this is the case, but I'm wondering if sports books have, like, bets. I don't know if they can do this quick enough, but, like, when a VAR 
call uh, is getting reviewed, if they can set up a bet, like, will they overturn this or not? I feel like people would really gamble on that a lot because you just, I mean, essentially you have no idea. Blimey, um, yeah. I mean, they do that in tennis, don't they? Not that actually the bookmakers themselves, but with a referee's umpire call, there's people employed remotely to uh, feedback who's won the point because there's a delay. So whether there's, you know, scope for that, I, you know, you never know betting people. They'll probably find a way to do that depending on the length of the delay. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's not. It's just frustrating, isn't it? Because we are literally at the point of, well, what is the purpose of VAR? Everything we've asked for, we thought we were getting, we seem to be even further away now, don't we, Carl? Yeah, I, I think the implementation of this is where we're going to um, win people over because I think, you know, we, we all knew um, this might be the tough first season. You know, any time you introduce something like this, it's, it's tough. Um, a lot of people are against it. And to be honest, Dan, me and you are people who were always for it. But to be honest, I think even with what's gone on lately, the likes of ourselves are sitting there thinking, well, do you know what? If this is what's going to happen every game, then actually maybe we are better off without it and going back to how it used to be. There is a place here for VAR. I think we really need to nail down what we're looking at, what decisions are going to be given, what we're going to get involved with. Is this, is it purely just clear and obvious? You know, because we're seeing some decisions where, you know, let's say when players are offside by an eyelash, um, it's kind of like, we'll do it. Is those the decisions we really want to see VAR being brought in for? Because if you can't really tell exactly when the player's offside because you can't pinpoint the moment the ball's actually left the foot, then when it's that close, do we not get VAR involved in those and we go with the on-pitch decision? You know, we do want the clear and obvious. And last night, one of the things, VAR came into its own last night for the goal because, as we saw, the linesman was clearly wrong and not just wrong. Yang was at least a couple of yards onside. Um, so that was brilliant. When VAR works like that, we're all going to sit there and go, yeah, brilliant. That would have been disallowed most of the time. But we've got this technology. It allowed us to see there was a clear mistake. But then when you take the next example where it hits the ball, I don't believe they're actually looking at those, are they? Unless it's going in on goal, I don't believe they're actually looking at decisions where a ball hits a defender's hand. And again, that brings a frustration because if you're going to look at it for a striker hitting his hand, there should be, well, we need to look in case the ball hits a defender's arm as well. Um, so I, I think the clearing up of how this is going to work is going to be the real key to the success going forward of our also, Carl, staying with you, there was a little bit of contention regarding the goal because Man United were under the belief that um, the whistle had been blown. And when we go back to Crystal Palace versus Aston Villa, the whistle was blown and that legitimate goal for Villa was disallowed. So was there anything in that or was it a whistle from somewhere else? Because I, I don't think the referee did really put these whistles to the mouth and sort of stop play. But then I think also at the same time, the linesman's flag was far too early, wasn't it? So not really, yeah. not perfect there, was it? No, I think, like as you say, I think the real thing we'd need to know there, know there is if the referee had blown. Because I would then say, if the referee has blown his whistle before Aubameyang puts that in the net, then I should, in, you know, in my view, the goal shouldn't stand. Because you will rightly say, well, the United players have stopped. They've heard the whistle. They're now not, you know, maybe not as intently going for the ball as they would do 
um, if they hadn't heard a whistle. So I think, yeah, that would be a real interesting thing to know, wouldn't it? Had the referee blown his whistle? Because for me, if he had blown the whistle already for the offside, then I don't believe you should give that goal because you can then say, well, were the United players really still trying to close Aubameyang down on the ball? Now, when we look at the replay for that goal, for me, I still think they're going for him even if the whistle has been blown, at the point where he chips it over De Gea into the net, I think you could say both defenders were still going for him like they felt, you know, the game was ongoing. So, you know, but I do see, as you say, if he has blown, then if you're a United player and you know you've heard a whistle, you'd have a right to feel aggrieved because whether it's the wrong decision or not, you've stopped play and and that, that will be key. And as you say, the linesman sticks his flag up way too early the referee should maybe let it go for a minute or so just to see. But a, a real contentious goal, that's for sure. But at the end of the day, in the overall game, I think it was probably fair. Yeah, I think you're right. At the same time, Drew, if we look outside the sort of the game itself and the ramifications of the result, you know, we've got Liverpool, Manchester City. The cream is rising to the top now. That's quite apparent. This whole notion of big six has become more and more absorbed. And now we really have got a case where you could say at the moment, half a dozen teams could be third or fourth this season. Yeah, absolutely. You know, honestly, I think it's more surprising if Manchester United, Arsenal, or Chelsea finish in the top four than it would be if Leicester finished in the top four. That's how far I think, especially United and Arsenal have fallen, and I know Chelsea's in their rebuilding phase and all that, but these two teams, and, and you see it in this game, but even if you go back a few weeks ago, Manchester United was a man up at Southampton and couldn't win the game. And to me, that's a sign of an average team. And that's exactly what they are. And Arsenal the same. You see it in this game. And so when, when you look at it and you say that, you know, the big two, that's 100% true. Because even Spurs are not going to challenge for the title. Absolutely not. And so those four, Spurs, Chelsea, Arsenal, Manchester United, they really are in kind of their own class. And then you could say that there's teams creeping up to them, whether it's Leicester. I don't necessarily think West Ham is there. I, I think they're just playing a little bit better than what they are right now. Um, but yeah, those top two are going to run away with it. It doesn't seem as if anyone's going to catch them this year or next year. And everyone else is just kind of battling for, for third and fourth. And I think that's going to be as intriguing of a, a fight towards the end of the year as it would be between Manchester City and Liverpool, or as it might be uh, for the relegation zone. I think you're absolutely right, Drew. I mean, usually, Carl, we look at the big six over the past few years, and it's been sort of like an even three and three split, where you sort of take three of those six and are sort of gunning for the title, and the other ones are sort of fighting over one remaining Champions League place. Now that gap has sort of widened between two and four. But also, you know, is it a case that... Manchester United, Arsenal, Chelsea, Tottenham, have they all regressed in quality or are we doing a disservice to the likes of Leicester, West Ham, Bournemouth? Have they improved and they're now starting to sort of meet in the middle somewhere? Yeah, yeah, I would say there's a bit of both there, isn't there? I think, you know, if you asked most of those teams in the top four, I mean, if you ask us as Spurs fans, we'd probably say to you we've regressed slightly. And one of the reasons there is when we were strong, we weren't bringing in players that could fight the players in the first eleven. 
Um, and you probably would say the same for United, um, for Chelsea. Um, and then obviously, you know, this year, Arsenal, you know, there's always had concerns. Um, I would also say there's a mixture of the other side of things where if you look at Leicester, they've gradually been adding, you know, after that title winning season, you know, they lost Mares. Um, they had a change around. They kept a few key, key players and they've gradually added some real quality to there. Um, and now they're starting to look a really strong side again. And I think it's a mixture of both, isn't it? Some teams have regressed. Some teams have improved with the money that the teams get in the Premier League now. It's allowed people like Leicester to actually spend a bit more and actually compete with the big boys. Um, it's not this kind of like one-way fight that the top two get the most money and the rest are fighting for scraps. So I think there's a mixture of both in there. You know, if we look at our league table at the moment, I actually feel you've got four mini tables that you could split the league into four and say, well, there are four almost mini mini little league tables in there we've got the top two they're well ahead of anyone else right now that is the only fight those two have to worry about now is each other and they'll need to match one another throughout the season then you have the second mini league which is the top four um and there's there are about six sides you could say are fighting for that you'll have your say eighth to twelfth and then below that you're going to have your relegation battle and I think the relegation battle is going to be between you know probably one of the best relegation battles we'll have in a long while um, at the moment so it's a real interesting league at the moment you still have the brilliant thing with the Premier League that any of those teams can beat anyone in there you know this is the brilliant thing you know we're looking at Watford at the moment as a side that look in real trouble but next week, they'll go and beat Liverpool or something like that. And everyone goes, wow, we didn't even see that result coming. So, yeah, I, I think there's a little bit. There's a little bit of regression and there's a little bit of improvement from all the other sides. Uh, and actually, in general, that will make for a better spectacle. But right now, we need those sides that are trying to chase the top four to find some consistency. Because I think that that's where we're really lacking. Yeah, I think the league certainly feels stronger this season. And you're right in the sense the landscape has shifted because before the... The sort of divisions in the league were first to six as your sort of big six league, and then seventh to twelfth, thirteenth, as you said, and then the relegation one. But now we've sort of widened out the big six ones to sort of include third to eight, so that's become more competitive. The top two are sort of gunning them out in their own sort of league, and then you've still got the sort of other two. So the landscape's shifting, and it's created a sort of a, a more interesting pattern, I guess, in the Premier League because it was getting a bit too rigid. And I think it's you know better for teams like. Leicester, West Ham, Bournemouth, they've got every chance to really feel confident about themselves. And we've spoken about Bournemouth a lot of times, Carl, about what are they actually planning for? This could finally be the season they come good. We'll get to them in a minute, but let's go back to Leicester, Drew. And I guess we really should be giving them credit to their start of the season. One defeat in the first seven. They put five past the hapless Newcastle on Sunday. It looks like they are going to be a real contender this season, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. I think Leicester are legit contenders for the top four. Not just the top six, the top four. I think and right. I think that... That should absolutely be their goal. It should be the Champions League, not just Europe. And I think they have the the players to do it. I think they have the team cohesiveness to do it. What I thought was a big takeaway from this game, and, and you're right, Newcastle are are rudderless. They, they have no chance of even staying in the league. And, and, you know, that's all well and good. But But what I really liked about Leicester in this game was they were Man City-esque in their ruthlessness. At the end of the game, they were still going for goal. They were still going to score as many as they can. And not many teams have the talent to do it, let alone 
that mentality and that ruthlessness. And so I think that's a big takeaway from Leicester here. I think that, and again, I, I get it was Newcastle, but not many, not many squads are going to have that. And the fact that they did it at home, sure, to me is a big sign that they really are going to push this season for a Champions League return. And I think doing it without James Madison, who you could say might be their best player so far this year, arguably, um, uh, you have a couple other candidates, of course, but to do it without him and to and to have guys step in and take his spot while he's injured, I thought was absolutely fantastic for them. I think Brendan Rodgers was a great hire. He's done fantastic things. And coming in, you know, the last third of, of the previous campaign, I think has really helped them get off to this good start so they could hit the ground running as they've done. I think Leicester are, are real good candidates for the top four. On the other end of that thrashing car in Newcastle, how concerned will Steve Bruce be at the way his team folded at the King Power? Now, admittedly, they went down to 10 men, so the job was always going to be even more difficult than it was going to be at the start of the game, but that's not the kind of display he'll want to be witnessing come full-time. I, I think they're in big trouble, and, and if I'm honest with you, Dan, I think most of their fans have already resided in themselves to the fact they could be playing championship football uh, next season. I don't, you know, Steve Bruce being in wouldn't feel fill me with a lot of confidence to begin with, to be honest with you, because I don't think he was ever going to be the right man to go in and turn the club around. Um, you know, he, his past record doesn't really show that he's someone that's going to come in and brilliantly, you know, turn the club around. They may have been better looking for someone like Big Sam or someone like that um, this season, you know, where at least you would know that your side's going to be a side that fights and and tries to win the game even if it's ugly you know you probably won't be getting thumped most weeks and you know you might get enough points to kind of survive but if I'm a Newcastle fan I'm kind of mapping out my trips to the places like Derby and Brentford already to be honest. Yep I wouldn't blame you either if you're a Newcastle fan to be honest because it's looking pretty bleak and Drew Brennan Rogers, he takes Leicester to a familiar haunt on Saturday one that sees the Foxes go to Liverpool could you see them being the first club to take points off of Jurgen Klopp's men this season? That is a really big ask for them. Could they do it? I mean, of course, right? Anything can happen in one game. Um, but I still find it hard to believe that they're going to be able to go into Anfield and and take points off them. I mean, a, a draw is definitely way more likely than a Leicester win. That's for sure. But I think it's it's too tall of an order right now especially you see Liverpool and and I know they got lucky uh, this past weekend against uh, Sheffield United but Liverpool are the class of the league even when they don't have their forwards really firing on all cylinders they still win games and so for Leicester I think that's going to be a pretty tough challenge to overcome Uh, but again if they're going to get points it's a draw it's definitely not a Leicester win at Anfield Okay, right, that brings up the first half. Don't go anywhere, because we've got a lot more to talk through on the other side. And we'll be back very, very soon. Your accumulator letting you down again. You've cashed out early. And you just can't win. Prehistoric football coupons? Nah. Have a think about it. Why not play a new way? At Loserpool, pick a loser and win a thousand pounds in a last man standing tournament. Be a loser and win at Loserpool. Enter for free now. Visit 
loserpool.com. Right, welcome back. Now, on the other side of this break, you would have heard the Loserpool ad, and now it's time to play Last Man Standing. So, Cole, Drew and I, we're going to be picking our weekly losers each week, going to formulate into a bit of a league table, check our progress, so on and so forth. So, if you're looking to play the game itself, I'll explain quickly that you pick a team that you think are going to lose in that week, a draw's not good enough, a lose, and if they do lose, you go into the next week, so the following week you get to play again. However, you can't use that same team that you've just picked to lose. So, let's say you pick Newcastle to lose this weekend at home to Manchester United, they lose, brilliant, you're into the next round, but you can't pick Newcastle the following week. I hope all that makes sense to the listeners, I hope that makes sense to Carl and Drew, because now I want your losers, just a quick, you know, Quick little burst as to why as well, and we'll see who's successful next week, and we'll roll it on all season. So, Cole, you get first pick. Who's your banker loser this week? Uh, for me, Dan, I'm going to go for Leicester. Um, Ooh, wow. Although they're having a great season, I just think Liverpool at home are too strong, um, and therefore I'm going to knock one of my big gun sides out of the way early. Tactical. I like that a lot. And, Drew, what about yourself, mate? That's a pretty bold pick, Carl. I see where you're going with it, but... Ooh, man, I, I don't know if I'd have that confidence. Um, I I want to go with Newcastle just for fun because of how bad they are. But then again, I don't trust Manchester United. So I'm going to leave that one out for a, a, a more guaranteed week. I'm going to go with Wolves traveling to the Etihad. I think there's absolutely no way they compete with Manchester City this weekend. I know Wolves just won their first game, and congratulations to them. But I don't think there's any way especially having to play Europa League Thursday, that they go to the Etihad and win. Absolutely not. Good pick. Okay, um, it's quite a difficult week this week, actually. There's no sort of, not many bankers. Um, I was going to go with Bournemouth, but I think Arsenal playing the Europa League might hamper the Gunners' chances. I'm going to go with, um, I'm going to go with Chelsea to win away at Southampton. I'm going to go with that. So Southampton will be my losers. I just think Southampton... You know, they're solid, but they just don't really have enough goals in their team for me. And I think Chelsea now starting to find their stride and their league position looking a little bit sort of more um, better, shall we say. So, yeah, I'm going to go for Chelsea to win. So, it's obviously, that's Southampton to lose. So, just to recap, our banker loses this week. Cole's gone for Leicester to lose at Liverpool. Drew's gone for Wolves to lose at Manchester City. I've gone for Southampton to lose at home to Chelsea. And we'll see how we get on next week and see who gets a, well, let's say three points for the win. And we'll sort of roll up at the league table from there. Right, that's the uh, the bills paid for this week. Let's get back to football business. And where should we go now? Cole, let's go to Sheffield United. And they nearly were the first team to take points off Liverpool this season. In what was, let's say, not a good day for goalkeepers, Dean Henderson would have wanted the ground to swallow him up after that howler. <laughs> Yeah, having having played in goal myself, Dan, most of my early career, I've kind of been there, done that and got the T-shirt and that, that he would no doubt have been kept awake by that goal over the course of the next few days. Um, you know, it's obviously live on telly as well. So obviously the amount of people that have seen it um, and it's just one of them, isn't it? When you're a goalkeeper, you don't get away with dropping a clanger because it normally results in a goal. You know, strikers are lucky. They can miss three sitters and no one kind of remembers it come the end of the day. But the goalkeeper, you drop one like that and you cost your team the game. It was unfortunate, wasn't it? Because United, they really put on a good display. And I think, you know, they, they would have gone into that kind of feeling. It You know, it might have been a free hit as such. No one's expecting you to get a result. But they played really well. And that will be encouraging for them for the rest of the season. Because if they can play like that, 
against most teams, then obviously they'll probably get enough points, especially at home, to make them safe for the season. Um, you know, let's not forget, you know, Liverpool, even though they weren't firing, they did still create a fair few chances. You know, on another day, Mane gets a couple, Salah probably nets a couple, and that result could have been flipped and it could have been a 4 or 5 nil. Um, win in the end but I think the performance is really encouraging if you're Sheffield United and actually good to once hear a manager come out and kind of you know have a little bit of honesty um, you know we saw in our game didn't we that you know Poch takes the blame for the goalkeeping error well there was nothing coming you know there was no sympathy coming the goalkeeper's way after that game you know the manager put it out there quite clearly you know if you want to play with the big boys then you've got to be better than that um, and from what we know, I think the same thing happened last season um, and the goalkeeper responded really well because I think they then went on a run of like six, six clean sheets or something like that. So I think he knows his goalkeeper and I think he knows that that might be what he needs to get him back on track. So, yeah, really pleased for Sheffield United because they could have come away with a result there. And Drew, obviously... Like Carl says, United gave a good account of themselves. And once again, their tactics seem to be squeezing all that space in the middle, trying to make your opponents play out wide. It nearly worked, you know, bar that goalkeeper howl up. It could have been a draw, couldn't it? You know, obviously things still could have happened thereafter. But it's fair to say that Chris Wilder has got a well-drilled outfit at Bramall Lane. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the thing about it is his tactics this year, I think a lot of people are going to to copy him. I'm not saying he's starting a revolution or anything, but the way he plays with uh, the center backs overlapping in that three and some different things they do are pretty impressive, and it has worked out for them. So, yeah, in this game, Sheffield United were absolutely fantastic defensively. They, you know, they weren't parking the bus. They conceded possession, of course, but they definitely were giving it a go. They weren't going to say, all right, guys, yeah, we're expected to lose. Let's just let's just suffer through these 90 minutes and and you know take our lumps. They they were out there to win. Again, conceded possession, probably intelligently doing so. Um, but I think Chris Wilder has done a fantastic job there. Right? Sheffield has has impressed in a few different games this season. So it's not as if just this game kind of came out of nowhere and and he finally got his tactics right or anything. He's done a fantastic job with them. And of the three promoted teams, they probably look like the one that has the best chance of surviving uh, after watching them play against uh, the different opponents they have. Yeah, I think that's a very fair shout on the evidence of the first seven weeks. And Cole, when we talk about not a good day for goalkeepers, the same can be said for Hugo Lloris. Now, we know that he's one that can create a, uh, how should we put this, an increased heart rate at times. Usually, it's just a small panic. You know, ball goes across the six-yard box. You think, oh. Unfortunately, that was not the case on Saturday. What a howler from the French international. Yeah, he's always susceptible to one of those, isn't he, the reach? You know, I, I think when we look at our goalkeeper, you know, the second half kind of shows you what you can get with Lloris on the flip side. You know, the guy for a shot stopper, he is an amazing shot stopper, Lloris. You know, he one of the best in the world. There's no doubt about it. Um, unfortunately, it's his distribution that I think really stops him being within the top one or two in, you know, world-class goalkeepers because that is the side of his game that lets him down. Um, we've seen it, as we say, Dan, many a week. He's kind of played a ball across the box where you go, oh, my God, it just got to where it wanted to be. Um, and he was always going to get caught out at some point. 
Um, our only, you know, if you like, hope in it is that he might have learned a lesson from doing that this weekend and maybe a little bit more, you know, aware of w- what's going on when the next time he gets put in a situation like that. He was obviously trying to be too clever. You know, it's that little thing nowadays. More and more players seem to do it where they think, I'm going to try and let that player get as close to me as he can before I deal with it. And unfortunately, you know, when you're going to cut things that fine, you run the risk of being caught out. Um, and luckily for us, we, we got away with that one because we managed to, you know, get the second and see the game out. But, you know, Potch has come out and kind of, you know, almost tried to defend him by taking the blame to say that, you know, he asked him to play that kind of way. But listen, whether if you ask your goalkeeper to play football, you certainly don't ask him to take risks like that in the, you know, in and around his own box when there's a striker shutting you down. So, you know, I, I don't believe the manager takes any blame there. It was just a nightmare and, and a lack of concentration from Hugo. Yeah, I think that's what it boils down to because I was in the ground and after the week we've had and the sort of string performances, that was the last thing you needed, especially with Serge Aurier being sent off minutes before. At that point, I was like, right, I'm going to take the the long walk down to the bar and get a drink. I do so, and then I miss Harry Kane's score. So, you know, you win some, you lose some. Obviously, we did win, and Drew, Tottenham had to play for almost an hour with 10 men after Serge Aurier was sent off. So after the week the club had, was that second half grit and determination exactly what they needed? Yeah, absolutely. You know... Spurs to me, I, I know both of you are Spurs supporters, and and I think this extends to not just the both of you, but all Spurs supporters. I think this season is your test from God of whether you can enter the pearly gates because of the amount of ridiculousness and unpredictability that Spurs descend upon you week after week. I did not expect Spurs, kind of kind of like how you just said, I expected them to crumble. You have two yellow cards for Aurier within a couple minutes, and then you have uh, Lloris trying to play the expansive, creative goalkeeping role off the back of losing in the League Cup to a fourth-tier side after blowing leads in the Champions League and then twice in the Premier League. And I think, of course, Spurs are going to crumble here, but they didn't. Harry Kane, like you mentioned, scores a goal, and then playing 10 men down for an entire second half, you know, they bucked up. And said, we're not going to let this one slip away. And I think that's very, very impressive for Spurs to do this year. Because, you know, all signs have been pointing to, of course, Danny Ng scores. And now Southampton's going to go on and and win the match. But that didn't happen. So, yeah, this was absolutely huge for Spurs, I think. It's a big confidence thing, especially doing it at home. And now Champions League midweek, they have to take on Bayern. So I think that was a big, big second half for them. Absolutely. Cole, could this be the line in the sand moment for Spurs now? I mean, yes, there is that huge embarrassment of going out of the League Cup to Colchester. It's clear to see that they haven't dwelled on it. Um, the chance of silverware look remote, shall we say, because I don't think we're going to win the Premier League and we're now relying on getting, we're going one bet in the Champions League or winning the FA Cup. That said, the season is still more than salvageable at this point, isn't it? Yeah, I think like as you say, Dan, the good thing that comes out of Saturday is the you know the fact that having a fight so long um, with just ten men that will help build the team morale and team spirit, and that's been one of the things that obviously over the last few weeks has really kind of been drilled down to as to like actually this squad doesn't seem together anymore, and actually when there's a fight, this team doesn't look like it has it about it to get through a fight together. So it's the first time they've really had to face what we call real adversity. 
adversity in a game and they've come through it. And, you know, I think that will kind of just help, you know, get everyone together, you know, a little bit of spirit and team spirit there. So I think that's good. As you say, the season's really early. You know, if everything can sort itself out and players can get their heads in the right place, um, the season, you know, could still be a good season for Spurs. You know, if we finish top four, if we was to have a good FA Cup run and possibly win it, get through the group stage of the Champions League and maybe get to the quarters or something like that, then I think you can sit there and go, well, we'd still class that as a good season where we can hopefully again build you know, it's the one thing we always say after a good season is hopefully we can build on that season. Unfortunately, we never seem to really build on it the way we need to to push on. But the season is salvageable. That result, I think, will help create some team spirit and, and get morale going. All we need to hope for now is that there isn't a drubbing coming our way tonight against Bayern Munich because all of a sudden, if you was to really take a hammer in and an embarrassing performance, it could put things back to zero. But I'd like to think at our ground that won't happen. And, you know, even if we was to lose 2-1, something like that, everyone's spirits are still high. We just need to make sure that when we play someone like Aurier, someone has a little word with him and says, listen, when you've just been booked, don't go and do anything stupid and give the referee an easy decision after that. Because, you know, we can't afford too many instances like that. No, we can't. I mean, there's an argument that the ball was out of play. But like you say, don't give the referee the chance to book you. And you'll still be on the pitch. It's just common sense, really, isn't it? But, Drew, as an outsider of a Spurs fan base, do you think Harry Kane is a more logical choice to be club captain? Because it seems to be a school of thought amongst social media at the moment that his comments and his actions are more inspiring than that of Hugo Lloris's. He always seems to be sort of, Lloris, a bit negative and a bit, you know, oh, I'm looking for my future elsewhere or, you know, I don't see myself staying at Tottenham forever. By extension, should the forward be given the armband instead for, for you? No, because Harry Kane is secretly an Arsenal supporter. Okay, right. Uh, no, <laughs> no, no I, you know, honestly, and maybe this is an ignorant, you know, opinion coming from across the pond, but I really don't put that much stock in who wears the armband. And the reason I say that is because within the group, you know who the real leader is, who the real captain is. And to me, the armband is kind of a... It, 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 it's more of a glorified title of, of actually wearing it because you, you see captains get subbed off. and I mean, not goalkeeping captains, but you see captains get subbed off and they have to move the armband. And, and so to me, it's not really that big of a deal. If Harry Kane is the leader, the actual leader in the dressing room, on the field, during team talks, then I think the players know that. Um, and, and, and I guess you could reward him, you know, symbolically, by giving him the armband, but I think then that then kind of more is a slap in the face to Lloris, a World Cup winner who's been at Spurs for quite a while now, you know, helped get them to the Champions League final. Obviously, Harry Kane did as well. Um, but I think if you do take it away from him, again, symbolically, I think it's more of a slap in the face to Lloris than it is a reward to Kane. So I, I don't really see that happening. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, actually. It probably sort of rocks the boat unnecessarily, so we'll move on. OK, going later into Saturday evening now, and Manchester City went into their clash with Everton already eight points behind Liverpool. So, a trip to Goodison was a must-win. They were made to work for it, but, Cole, once again, that overall quality was the difference, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, as we see, you know, someone like Mares doesn't get picked week in, week out, but 
you know, you can already see when he does play what a player that is. And, you know, when you've got people like that that you can bring on and, you know, Jesus up front, um, then you, you know you're not going to have a problem because those sort of players are great. They come in, they do just as good as the players they're sitting out on. Um, and, and that's kind of where I still feel they'll pit Liverpool this season with the fact that they've got that, you know, more of what I call a squad to choose from. Um, you know, the, if there's a couple of injuries, I still think they can get by with those injuries with what they've got to bring in. Whereas I think when you look at Liverpool, if there may be a Van Dijk or Salah injury away from a real problem um, and, and then just bringing in ordinary players, um, so, yeah, City are brilliant. And when you've got someone like, you know, the Ginger Pele on the pitch doing what he does um, and putting the sort of balls in that De Bruyne's playing lately, then, you know, you're going to struggle to keep up with them. And they're, they're going to blitz a lot of teams this year. Everton run them close, though. You know, Everton had plenty of chances. And I think it's the thing that's going to cost Everton throughout the season and has done the last few seasons in the fact that they're not as clinical as they need to be in front of goal when it matters. Um, so City, you know, they kind of, they got away with one a little bit because Everton had good chances. But I still, you still always got the feeling that City could raise it if they needed to. Um, and some of the goals were just real class goals. You know, Mares's finish was brilliant. And yeah, you know, they'll be well pleased with that because again, they can't afford another slip up knowing that Liverpool had already done the job. Absolutely. I mean, with some of the balls that Kevin De Bruyne is playing at the moment, I think I could get five goals in the Premier League. I just need to sort of stand there and just get like a touch on it because he's just, he's just, oh, they're just <laughs> perfect, really, aren't they? Like they're a striker's dream, and the dream was realised early on for Gabriel Jesus. It was a nightmare for fantasy Premier League managers around the world when Sergio Aguero was dropped. But Joe, it must be said that Jesus did give a good account of himself, and although he's, you know, he's not really the first class sort of striker that City will probably hope for just yet. He does seem to be the heir apparent of City's attacking setup, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, that's why he was brought in, was to eventually, I think they wanted it sooner rather than later, for him to kind of take over for Sergio Aguero. And, and you're right, Gabriel Jesus has not proven himself to be a number one striker, to be the first guy on the team sheet. But I think he has proven himself to be a high-quality uh, deputy. And when he does step in, whether that's going to be in in-league games or Champions League or whatever it ha- happens to be, he does prove his worth. And so I think, you know, he came out, I believe it was last week, and said he's frustrated, he's not playing more. And good, I, I, would, hope, uh, I would hope he doesn't want to be sitting every game as a substitute. Um, but when he does come in, he proves that he does have the quality to get 30 minutes as a sub, to get some starts uh, when they rotate. And especially, I think he's a good fit because of Pep's system where you can plug and play. You can put in different guys and they're all going to be able to execute it. So I think he, he's done a good job. He, he's earning his keep. But can he take the step to become a number one striker? Whether that's going to be at Man City or if eventually he's going to have to move somewhere else, I think that's the biggest thing he has to ask himself. Carl, you mentioned Everton. You're right, they did give a good account of themselves. But three defeats in a row now, it's getting a bit sticky for Marco Silva. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily win the next game or you're gone. But it just seems to be this, you know, we're waiting for the future and things are going to come good at Everton. It's still looking a long way away, doesn't it? How much patience can the Everton have with the manager considering the amount of money that has been spent under his reign? 
Yeah, I think I think it's it's the consistency thing that's bugged Everton over the course of time, isn't it? Yes. Recently, you know, they they put in a performance like that where I think if you was an Everton fan, you'd have come away from that performance thinking, look, it's Man City. We knew we probably was turning up today, and we weren't going to win. But we really gave them, a, you know, a great game. We, you know, we give them a bl- bit of a bloody nose, and on another day, we could maybe a nick something. The problem then comes is that. They'll play, you know, next week they'll play and they've got Burnley. And what will happen is Burnley will absolutely outplay them and, and Everton won't even have been within the game. And I think that's when, if you're an Everton fan, you're getting frustrated because it's that where you think, I don't mind losing to City, um, but I want to make sure that the performances we put in against the likes of Burnley, Bournemouth and that are better than what we're doing now. And we're starting to put those teams away. Um, but Everton just can't find that consistency in their game. And again, you know, they're a side that, for me, lack a real class quality striker up front that they can always rely on to tuck the ball away. Behind them, you've got great players. Sigurdsson, you know, he, he will deliver you great passes and will score the odd screamer. Um, I just think they lack goals at vital moments. And again, this weekend, that was where it cost them. Because, Drew, when you look at possession stats in terms of average possession so far this season, Everton are in the top six of teams. So, you know, results aren't going their way. Does that suggest that they're worrying too much about maintaining the ball, they might need to implement a new style, or does it simply boil down to they've got a lot of the ball, they just can't convert the chances? I think it's the latter, because like like Carl mentioned, they don't have really a great centre-forward up there. They were hoping to get that in, in Moise Keane, but you know, two months into the season and he's still not starting, which to me suggests maybe he's not that good. You know, obviously long season, but um, they're they're missing that person to finish up there, right? Gilfie Sigurdsson, as good as he is, is not going to get you 20 goals a year. That's just not the type of player he is. And so for Everton, that's their big problem right now, right? Lucas Dina can only do so much as an attacking uh, fullback. And, for Everton, they just don't have anyone who's going to find the back of the net. And so, yeah, you can you can kick the ball around in possession all you want, but if you can't convert, then you're not going to be able to win. No, you're absolutely right. Okay, so we've got you know a handful of minutes left, so let's do a bit of a Turbo Express um, rest of the Premier League roundup. Where should we go first? Cole, if you can take on Bournemouth West Ham, two entertaining teams, I think a fair result, and also VAR did a good job again, didn't it? Yeah, I like as you say, Dan, I think that was a fair result. And both sides will be encouraged by certain elements of their game and they'll both be let down by certain elements. I think West Ham might be feeling like, you know, they're the sort of sides they want to go and beat nowadays. You know, they'll hope that they are better than those teams. Um, but Bournemouth are not a bad side. Initially, you know, when they're at home, they play some really good football. Um, but like as you say, a fair result on the day. If you're either team, you'd probably come away saying, well, we would have taken a point because I think West Ham on the road will feel slightly happy uh, and Bournemouth will, will feel that they're you know, content with that result. And Drew, you get your boys Chelsea, a relatively routine win at home against Brighton. We would like to think so, but seeing Chelsea this year, nothing's routine with them. True. Um, of course, first home win, first clean sheet of the year, great, both of those things. But actually, I think something that kind of went unnoticed but is a really big important detail to notice is on, I want to say, 68, 69 minutes, there was this great counterattack that Chelsea went on. And to me, it was a flash of the future. Tamori gets on the ball, intercepts it. 
does the outlet to, I believe it was Callum Hudson-Odoi, him and Mason Mount interchange to go sprinting past midfield. And then when Hudson-Odoi gets the ball back, he and Tammy Abraham um, uh, mix in together and interchange. Eventually, the last pass goes wide for Williams, so they didn't score. But to go box-to-box on that counterattack as quickly and as flawlessly and as ruthlessly as they did, I thought, is a great sign for Chelsea going forward in the next however many years because all of those young players, some of them they've signed already and extended their contracts, some they're working on. And so I think the Chelsea youth revolution is on, and it was evident in that counterattack that we saw. Good shout there. Cole, Watford. Now, you would have thought after getting pumped by Man City, they'd be you know, up for at least proving to people that they're not you know useless. They didn't really offer anything against Wolves, did they? And as a consequence, Wolves got their first win. Watford's still looking for theirs. Yeah, I think you're really worrying if you're a Watford fan right now because it's not looking good signs, you know. They had that new manager bounce, if you like, in the Arsenal game and you kind of felt that, you know, that might help them and start building things up a little bit. But since then, obviously, they've gone and been absolutely humiliated at City offered nothing this weekend I think the only thing you'll be thinking now is who's coming next in because surely the new man can only have one more game before he's uh he's put through the revolver um and we see someone else but Watford I think for me Dan are in big trouble um and a good result for Wolves because that kind of gets them off and running that will build a little bit of confidence and it might be that they can start getting their season back on track now yeah I think that'll be the spark for Wolves because although they hadn't one before Saturday, they had actually drawn four of the six matches. So the sort of record was not great, but there was a bit of a caveat attached to it. So I think that will be the the rocket that they need. Drew, question for you. Are Aston Villa the new Fulham? Jeez, they they just definitely might be. I mean, I will say the, the one thing that was pretty good from this game was... For Aston Villa, and and, well, actually, I guess not just in this game, they have proven that they can score some goals. And so I think that may bail them out of some matches later on this year. But at home against Burnley, you can't give up the late one like they did to Chris Wood, which ended up making them share the points. So Aston Villa, I think they're going down a darker road than they envisioned, and they certainly might just turn into the new Fulham. Yeah, because I think at this same stage of seven games, they've both got exactly the same points and they spent about the same kind of money. So the harsh realities of just because you spent a lot doesn't necessarily get you success. And Villa are starting to learn that the hard way. You are right, though, that they are scoring goals, so they might have a little bit more in them, but defensive naivety is costing them. Against Burnley, evident of that. Arsenal as well. So the situation's not looking great, but there is sort of room for improvement and, I guess, room for slight optimism. I'll take Palace Norwich because there wasn't really much to do on that one. All I would say is that, you know, Palace... They're looking quite good at home this season. That will probably be enough to keep them never really in a relegation battle. They'll be in that sort of, you know, lower mid-table bracket, that 7th to 13th mini-league, as we spoke about earlier. And we referenced Zahar earlier. It seems as if he's got rid of that summer sulk now, that he's actually sort of turning in those kind of performances. But, you know, whether this actually leads to a movie in the summer, who knows. But he seems to be showing the, the signs of life that he had at the end of last season. And that is a wrap. For this week, I think we're just in within the sort of 60 minutes or so. So well done to all of us. I need to uh, thank my guest for another sterling effort. Absolutely uh, top chat this afternoon. So thanks ever so much, Carl. I hope you'll be joining me next time around. Cheers, Dan. Really enjoyed that and, and look forward to next time, mate. Cheers, buddy. And of course, Drew, open invite to you. I hope you'll be joining us also. 
Yes, of course. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Love chatting with you, Dan, and of course with you as well, Carl. Uh, happy to do it again next week. Excellent. And if you've got anything to plug, Joe, do you want to think anything to uh, shout out? Yeah, sure. Why not? You guys can uh, send me free money. I'll take that, whatever it happens to be. Uh, message me for my uh, address. Don't want to put that publicly. Uh, but yeah, come on over. Check out my show, On the Counter. It's a uh, twice-a-week podcast that we do on Mondays and Thursdays, where we, of course, talk the Premier League, and me and my uh, new co-host that he's been on recently a lot, we try and make it a little bit more lighthearted, a little bit more funny. We tell some different stories, so come on over, check it out. iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, all of that great stuff. On the counter with Drew Pels. Top man, Drew. Right, with that said, it just leads me to say that my name's Dan Tracy, this is The Real Football Cast, in association with Loserpool, and until next time, goodbye. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.